So this week's going to be a little different. Um, we have enough moving parts that we could really get in our own way this morning. The purpose of this morning's service is this. We have been uh, walking through the, the question, why do Christians do such strange things? And for today, we're going to talk about worship. And not only are we going to answer the question, why do Christians worship, but we are going to demonstrate worship and we are going to worship together. Um, now, so you'll, you'll notice things are going to be a little different, so everything's a little disjointed, so our ushers are, are trying to figure out when in the world we're actually going to take an offering. Um, that's going to come later in the service, so this is your warning. Let me encourage you to reach into the seat back in front of you, grab one of those connection cards, and fill that out with your prayer requests and the different information there so we can pray for you this week. Uh, that'll come in just a little while. It's not coming right now. The offering will come in a bit, but you can be working on that, so you can write us a whole novel if you like. That's, that's fine. Um, today's kind of a special day. Uh, today um, is Father's Day. So, that's right. Let's give our dads a round of applause. That's good. Let's say, okay. Um, <laughs> Mother's Day, we tend to be way more emotional and quiet. Be like, let's, we should honor our moms. Thank you, Mother. Father's Day gets a little raucous and rowdy. That's okay. Right, dads? Unless you're trying to take a nap. Then it ain't okay. U.S. Open is on this evening. It's like the greatest Father's Day gift ever. It's the nap that keeps on giving. <laughs> so happy Father's Day, dads. We hope you feel honored and appreciated. I appreciate you. I am thankful that you are here at Uniontown Bible Church today. And I am praying that today is a day that you feel not just recognized and appreciated, but you feel honored and you understand how grateful as children we are for our dads. And then dads, take a few minutes to look at the little rugrats running around your house or the not so little rugrats. And remember about what a great opportunity that God has given you for them to call you dad, for you to be a primary influence in their life and then use that influence for good. So happy Father's Day. Um, I'm going to begin this morning by just reading Psalm 150. It's a psalm we're very familiar with, but I think it sets the context of our morning really well. It says this, hallelujah. There's a word we don't use enough, at least not in the right way. Hallelujah, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty expanse, praise him for his powerful acts, praise him for his abundant greatness, praise him with trumpet blast, praise him with harp and lyre, praise him with tambourine and dance, praise him with strings and flute, praise him with resounding cymbals, praise him with clashing cymbals. When it comes down to it, here's the most important thing. Let everything that breathes praise the Lord. What is the purpose of worship? Maybe let me, let me define worship first. Worship is our response to God for who he is and what he's done. Worship is our response to God for who he is and what he's done. What's the purpose of of worship. Well, you got to understand this. God has blessed every single one of us sitting in this room, and I don't care who you are. You have all been blessed either materially, physically, even spiritually in so many different ways. And the reason God has blessed you is for the sake of his glory. The problem is our natural and sinful tendency is to disconnect the blessings that God has given to us. And to disconnect those blessings from the purpose of those blessings. The purpose of those blessings to make much of him. And we've taken those things and we've turned those blessings into an opportunity to make much of us. 
So for example, one of the greatest blessings that we experience is salvation. And yet somehow, we have taken salvation and made it about us. You know, Jesus loves me. He saved me. He sanctified me. He rescued me. He redeemed me. Yeah, absolutely. But our tendency is to stop there at the God loves me so much. He gave me Jesus. It's all about me. And what's supposed to happen with salvation is supposed to roll past that. God loved you so much and gave you Jesus so that his glory might be made known among the nations. The whole purpose of God saving you is so you would praise him. Oh, wait, so you're telling me that when God saved me, it was with this ulterior motive. It wasn't just because he loved me and wanted to rescue me. It was so, that, so, it was so self-serving of God so that I would make much of him. I'm not telling you that. God is. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you might proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. He saved you so that you would make much of his name. And that's the purpose of worship. So let's do that together this morning, shall we? Father God, I ask that you would take our worship today and in some way, Turn it into something that pleases your heart. Lord, we bring nothing of value, nothing good to the table, but what we can bring is a grateful and thankful heart. So God, I ask that we would do that and do that with every ounce of our energy, with our entire heart, soul, mind, and strength. For it's in Jesus' good name I pray, amen. So I threw a curveball that was already, um, oops, so I told you we weren't going to take the offering yet. So what you just saw before, that was not the offering. <laughs> We're going to do it again. <laughs> if you're a guest with us, we don't really don't do that. Sorry, I didn't get enough. Pass them around again. We're locking the doors till we get enough. I'm just kidding. That's not... Um, <laughs> That is not what we're doing. We are going to do another offering. So ushers, I'm giving you a heads up. It's going to be after this section. I will pray at the end. It'll be about 10 minutes from now. And so then we'll do it. There's a purpose for that. And part of it's because this scripture speaks directly to our giving. And so I don't want to miss out on the opportunity to not just, um, well, honestly, we had a pretty good plan to go in. That's all. No, I'm just kidding. Um, we really want to tie scripture to what we're doing this morning very closely. This is another opportunity for us to do it. So go First Chronicles chapter 29. First Chronicles chapter 29. So I'm going to admit this up front. I said this to a couple people this morning. Worship is one of those things we could do an eight-week sermon series on, and Jeremy and I are going to try to fit it into 35 minutes. So um, we have a lot of possibilities of missing our marks. But long story short, um, there may be a series in the, in the next couple of years here where we walk through worship in, in, in eight, eight weeks. Today, I want to look at First Chronicles 29. Quick background for this chapter. What we're looking at here in this section um, is an understanding of what motivates our worship to God. So the background of the story is this. David is not allowed by God to build a temple. His son Solomon is going to be the next king, and he is going to build the temple. And so in order to build the temple, they need to raise the funds that are necessary to build the temple. And so this amazing offering happens, and, and just... Tons of money comes in and resources and people are just giving whatever they can possibly give. But what, what I wanted you to see is this, not, ooh, we should give like that. No, 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 no. We should have the same perspective about God that they had. If you look at First Chronicles chapter 29, verse 10, we get to hear the prayer of David after this huge offering has come in and you get to see how he viewed God. 
It says, then David blessed the Lord in the sight of the assembly. He said this, may you be blessed, Lord God, our Father, from eternity to eternity. To yours, Lord, is the greatness. Stop there. Who's great? Are we? No, his is the greatness, and probably no better place is his greatness seen than at the act of creation. God is so great and so powerful that he stood above nothing, spoke, and something responded. God's great. Yours is the greatness. Yours is the power. There's so many different places you can see the very power of God spelled out through Scripture, not the least of which is through the Exodus event with the Israelites. As God takes his people by their hand and leads them through the wilderness and provides for them and protects them and leads them and directs them and he is present with, the, with his very power in their midst. Yours is the greatness. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory and the splendor and the majesty. No one compares to God. See, everything in the heavens and on earth belongs to you. He owns everything. The earth and everything in it, Psalm 24 tells us, the world and its inhabitants belong to the Lord. And unlike most kings, this great king isn't hoarding it. See, everything belongs to you. Verse 12, riches and honor come from you and you are the ruler of everything. Power and might are in your hand and it's in your hand to make great and to give strength to all. That's David's testimony. David's testimony is he was the youngest of eight brothers, highly unqualified for the role of king. He is out taking care of the sheep in the field. Samuel comes to find a, a, a new king and he goes through all seven sons and after each one he's like, this one's got to be it. I mean, he is... He looks like a king. He talks like a king. He carries himself like a king. And every time God said, stop looking on the outside. Watch what I can do with the unexpected. And David, the young shepherd boy, comes in. <laughs> and God whispers in Samuel's ear, that's him. And Samuel had to go, seriously? David's very testimony is that God is the one who makes great. God is the one who gives strength to all. Why do you worship? And you have to worship when you have an accurate view of who God is. You can't help but worship. You can't help but worship when you, you have an accurate view of yourself. That continues. Look at verse 14. Who am I? Who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? For everything comes from you. We've given you only what's already come from your hand. We're just aliens and temporary residents in your presence as, we, as our, were all of our ancestors. Our days on earth are just like a shadow without hope. Lord, our God, all this wealth that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand because everything belongs to you. David starts and says, God, who in the world are we? We have nothing. We bring nothing to the table. The only thing I do that is really good is screw things up. I can find a way to mess things up like nobody else. Uh, we're in the middle of a bathroom renovation. I promise you, I can mess things up faster than my wife can do this. I have a gift. 
We have the same gift with God. We're like, oh, look at all the good things I did. And God's like, your righteousnesses, even your best efforts are just filthy rags, man. God, who are we? The psalmist says, when I look at the heavens, when I look at the work of your fingers, when I look at the moon and the stars that you have set in place, the, the thought that comes to mind is, what is man? That you would do all of this and yet still consider me. Everything comes from the hand of God. And so if you understand and have an accurate view of who God is, if you understand and have an accurate view of who you are, then everything about your life is going to be marked by worship. What we do here, this is just a small segment of it. This is that opportunity we get to come together as a family and corporately worship the great God who loves us and gave his son for us. This is our opportunity to give back to him what he has already owned. That's the whole point. And when you understand who he is and who you are, it changes the way you live, it changes the way you love him, it changes the way you love other people, it changes the way you give, it changes your generosity, it changes all of those things. And, and we'll talk a little more about giving next week, but, but notice, your, your giving is an act of worship that recognizes that everything you have in this life, that your entire being is wrapped up in him and how big he is and how small you are and how fortunate and blessed you are to have the opportunity to be generous in any way. That's the heartbeat of David. He saw God clearly, and he saw himself clearly. May we give with that understanding. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to give. And Lord, I, I, I joke, and giving twice is, is not <laughs> the point. So Lord, I pray that anybody who's sitting here in that basket passes and their normal response is one of I must give, Lord, let them just let that basket pass. Instead, Father, I pray that we would have the heart of David. That our prayer would be like his. Lord, yours is the greatness and the power and the glory and the splendor and the majesty. Because everything in the heavens and on earth belongs to you. So, Lord, Lord we, we give you thanks and we praise your glorious name. Now, forgive us for thinking we've gotten all this on our own. Because we haven't. We need you, and we have you, and because of that, we can give. So, Lord, would you be pleased with our gifts, but more importantly, would you be pleased with our hearts? Amen. Lord, there's no secret. We can't do this on our own. We can't live life. We can't succeed. We can barely breathe. So, Father, I ask that today we would cling to you like we haven't before, and we would worship you out of a heart of appreciation. For it's in Jesus' good name I pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Take your Bibles. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 6. So, so some of the times what happens with worship in particular is that um, we carry with us tradition. We carry with us um, an understanding. We carry with us preferences. Uh, we carry with us the idea that worship must look a specific way every time or it's not worship. So that means it should either be like this song we just sang, the Lord, I need you, or it's just the heartfelt cry out of our desperation for God in the midst of dark times and difficulty, marked by 
quiet and reflectiveness. Or, or we come from the school of thought, and that's not worship. Worship is to be fun and big and celebratory. And, and I think what you'll find as you look through Scripture is that worship is pretty complex. It's not just one stripe or another. And so as you look at 2 Samuel chapter 6, what you're looking at is the story, a very well-known story that was probably popularized most in our, our pop culture back in the 80s with Kevin Bacon in the movie Footloose um, as he grossly misused a piece of scripture for that movie. But when you take it in its context, it actually is a beautiful picture of the goal of worship or the purpose of worship and how we worship. See, David has just retaken over Jerusalem as the political city of his nation. He has now been coronated as king. He is the ruler now. And and he decides that what he wants to do is to go and get the Ark of the Covenant, that Ark that that, um, uh, was in the tabernacle and was so ornate and beautiful and had the golden cherubim on top of it and their wings facing into the middle and the ark that basically symbolized God's very presence with his people. And David wanted to take that and bring it back to his political capital so that others would know that God was with them. And so what David does, look at chapter 6, verse 1. David assembles all fit young men in Israel, 30,000 of them. And he and all these troops set out to bring the ark of God from Baal Judah. The ark bears the name the name of the Lord of armies who is enthroned between the cherubim. So David and those men set the ark of God on a new cart and transported it from Abinadab's house, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the cart. They brought it with the ark of God from Abinadab's house on the hill. Ahio walked in front of the ark. David and the whole house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all types of firwood instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, Systems and symbols. So, so what you have here is this picture of David going to get that ark, and he's got great intentions, fantastic intentions. He doesn't just bring a, a trailer that's been sitting in somebody's shed and is starting to fall apart. He gets a new cart, and he brings it, and he loads the ark on top of it. The problem is, is that when you look at Scripture and the description of God and that the, 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 the um, instructions that God gives his people for the transport of the ark, they aren't to transport it on a cart. Levites are supposed to hold poles and to hold the ark in between them. That's how it is supposed to be transported. What David is doing is the same thing the Philistines did when they moved the ark. So they're walking, and they're celebrating. They're leaping and dancing, and they're playing all kinds of instruments. Verse 6 is this. As the cart came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah, he reached out to the ark of God, took hold of it because the oxen had stumbled. And, and you've done that before. You're walking next to somebody with a, a wheelbarrow, and they're carrying it, and all of a sudden it starts, and you just kind of reach out to steady it. You reach out to make sure it doesn't fall. You don't want to drop the load of, of mulch bags on the ground. Not, not that I speak from practical experience. Again, like I said, I can screw even that up. Um, so we, you reach out, and that's what Uz is doing. He's walking next to the ark, and the ark, the oxen who are pulling the cart, they get to the threshing floor, and they kind of take a misstep, and the cart kind of jostles, and the ark tilts just a little, and Uzzah, well-intentioned Uzzah, reaches up to just steady it, and verse 7, the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, and God struck him dead 
on the spot for his irreverence. And he died right there next to the ark. Startling. I bet you the music stopped. As Uzzah gets zapped and falls to the ground, I bet you the music stopped. And the people had to be racking their brains with what's going on. And if you look at David's response in in verse 8, he said, David was angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. Verse 9, David feared the Lord that day. So see, the two outcomes are David is angry because as he views this event, hey, you know what? We were doing the best we could with what we had. And God said, but that's not what I said to do. See, we are to approach our worship with God with a sense of sobriety, sense of respect, sense of reverence, and not presume too much. Because we're not worshiping just anybody. We are worshiping the God of great glory and majesty and power and might. A God who is truly holy. So in our worship, we cannot trivialize the holiness of God. David's mad. David's scared. He diverts the the ark to this fellow's house, Obed-Edom. And Obed-Edom in Gath, ever heard of Gath, the Goliath of Gath, that's that Philistine city. So Obed-Edom takes the ark into his home, and it's left there for three months, and it says, for three months the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his family repeatedly because of the presence of the ark and the presence of God with his family. David finds out about it, and he's like, we are getting that ark, but we're going to do it the right way. And so he heads to Obed-Edom's house. He says this, David went and had, sorry, verse 12, middle of verse 12, David went and had the ark of God brought up from Obed-Edom's house to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were now, look, carrying the ark, see, David knows what to do now. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord advanced six steps, they stopped everything and sacrificed an ox and a fattened calf. And when that was done, verse 14, David was dancing with all his might before the Lord wearing a linen ephod. He and the whole house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of the ram's horn. And as the ark entered the city of David, Saul's daughter, Michael, also David's wife, looked down from the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. So so there is no question how David feels at this moment. There's no doubt that as as David is coming into the city, he is ecstatic. That word for dancing and for leaping is the same word that's used throughout Scripture a number of different ways. It's the response of someone who, who meets a loved one after a long period of time. It's the response of somebody who gets good news from a faraway country. It's the response of someone who is released from prison. It's the response of someone who's experienced great victory. It's the response of the bride and groom at their wedding. That's the dancing that's happening. It's, it's just filled with joy and passion and enthusiasm. There is nothing going to stop David, not even Michael. You get Michael who is standing looking out the window and sees David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And the end of verse 16 says, she despised him in her heart. We don't know why. We just know that she saw the the emotional and celebratory response of David, and she hated him for it. Skip down to verse 20. When David returned home to bless his household, Saul's daughter, Michael, his wife, came out to meet him. You, men, that's not a meeting you want to have when you first get home from work. 
Because she didn't come out with the pleasant platitudes or the gentle kiss around the neck. She came out swinging. So here comes David returning home, and Michael comes out and says, Oh, yes, how the king of Israel has honored himself today. He exposed himself in the sight of the slave girls of his subjects like a vulgar person would expose himself. You, you see what Michael thinks about his celebration. I can't believe you. How vulgar, how distasteful of a king to act like that. David's response in verse 26. I will dance before the Lord and I will dishonor myself and humble myself even more. David says, listen, when when it comes to who God is, when it comes to being able to, to enjoy the presence of God in my life, there is nothing that's going to hold me back. There is no level of dignified response that, that is necessary. It's not about being uh, polite. It's not about being meek. It's about giving him the glory due his name. It's not about a traditional response. It's not about a classical response. It's not about a contemporary response. It's about a sincere response of your heart. Worship is so very complex. We need to be marked by reverence and celebration. We also have to engage all of these different emotions in worship. You look through the book of Psalms, which is the hymnal for Israel, and you see their worship songs being sung and some of the emotions. I am going to fly through these. If you want the references later, you just shoot me an email and I'll hook you up. But Psalm 9-2, I will rejoice and boast about you. I'll sing about your name, most high God. Psalm 118.23, this came from the Lord, it is wondrous in our sight. Psalm 4.7, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and new wine abound. That, my friends, is a lot of joy. (laughs) Psalm 33.22, may your faithful love rest on us, Lord. We put our hope in you. Psalm 25.16, turn to me and be gracious to me because I'm a, what? Because I'm alone and I'm afflicted. My life is consumed with grief, my years with groaning. My strength has failed because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. This is worship. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. God, you will not despise a broken and a humbled heart. Soul, why are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God. I'll still praise him. He's still my savior and my God. Because the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, he saves those who are crushed in spirit. As for me, who is poor and in pain, God, I pray your salvation would protect me. See, as you walk through the hymnal of Israel, what you find is every single one of these emotions gets engaged. Fear, grief, anger, despair, weariness, joy, delight, happiness, comfort, hope, and love. It's not one-dimensional. It's all-encompassing. So you know what that means? We worship the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. There's no peace that's left off. It also means there's no possible way we could do all of those emotions in one service. The same thing goes for our physical expression in worship. You know that it's modeled and commanded in Scripture in a number of places. Job 1.20, Job stood up, tore his robe, shaved his head. He fell to the ground in worship. See? Baldness. Worship. Clap your hands, people. 
shouts to God with a jubilant cry. As I go through this list of physical expressions that are both modeled and commanded in Scripture, let me just challenge you to think something in your head as we're running through these. What aspects of physical expression and worship have you not done? And ask yourself why. Clap your hands. Shout to God. Come, let us worship. Let us bow down. Let us kneel before him. Lift up your hands in the holy place and bless the Lord. Praise his name with dancing. Make music to him with tambourine and lyre. Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous ones. Praise from the upright is beautiful. Praise the Lord with the lyre. Make music to him with a ten-stringed harp. Sing a new song to him. Play skillfully on the strings with a joyful shout. And yes, there's even physical expression for our introverts. Let the whole earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants stand in awe. Weeping, mourning, groaning, laughing, shouting, clapping, dancing. All of these things are modeled or commanded in Scripture. And so your question might be, so do we need to show how we feel when we worship? Um, The answer is this. It's not that you need to show how you feel when you worship. It's that you do. You already do. My heart is glad. Therefore, my whole being rejoices. The heart pours out the way we feel, the way we speak, the way things really truly are in our heart. So as you consider God's mercy, as you consider how he has loved you and saved you, is your heart glad? Does anybody else know that? Does God know that? Man, let's, let's be encouraged this morning by the depth of love that God has shown for us. Because that depth is immeasurable. Let's stand. Let's sing together. All right. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. So as Frank said earlier, he asked me to take a few minutes and share a part of this message time with him. This is a little out of my comfort zone. So in return, I've asked him to come up in a couple minutes and do an interpretive dance for us while while Mark sings. It's going to be great. No, I'm excited to, uh, to share something with you all that I think is uh, really key to God's church. God's been showing me lately about the whole idea of worship being a weapon in our lives and how in Scripture we see when his people praise and worship him, how his presence shows up and how his power shows up. So we're going to look at um, this story in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. If you guys have your Bible and want to turn there, that would be great. Um, just to give a little context of this story. So this is about the people and the nation of Judah at the time. It was led by King Jehoshaphat. He was about 35 years old. He was a king that loved God. And during the story, he was trying to protect his people from these opposing armies, these multiple armies that were coming against him. So let's check this out in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, starting at verse 1. It says, After this, the armies of the Moabites, the Ammonites, and some of the Munites declared war on Jehoshaphat. Messengers came and told Jehoshaphat, A vast army from Edom is marching against you from beyond the Dead Sea. They were already at Hazan Tamar. Jehoshaphat was terrified by this news and begged the Lord for guidance. He also ordered everyone in Judah to begin fasting. So people from all the towns of Judah came to Jerusalem to seek the Lord's help. Jehoshaphat stood before the community of Judah and Jerusalem in front of the new courtyard at the temple of the Lord. He prayed, O Lord our God, you are the God of heaven. You are the ruler of all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand and no one can stand against you. Then I'm just going to move on to verse 12 here. It says, Our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. So if you guys just imagine this, you're the people of 
of Judah. You look out and you see these multiple armies coming against you, right? It's terrifying. Humanly speaking, it's terrifying. So you might be thinking this is the day that your lives are going to end. Um, you have family you're worried about. Um, you might be get ca- uh, kidnapped and become a captive. It's terrifying. So what does King Jehoshaphat do? As he sees the enemy approaching, he chooses first to lift his eyes to God. They begin to praise. They begin to worship. I love it, I love it that they begin to g- gather everyone around and remind each other of who God is. In verse 6 again, it says, Power and might are in your hand, and nothing can stand against you. It was like they began to find courage, and their faith started to rise up. They were strengthened. They were hopeful, and they took their eyes off their enemy and worshiped and lifted their eyes up to God, and their whole perspective changed. Their circumstance didn't change, but their perspective changed. So one of the things I love about um, when we worship on Sunday mornings here, I don't know why I keep adjusting this mic, um, is we... Uh, we gather together to remind each other, right, of who God is when we sing these songs to him. When we sing, our God is greater and he's stronger and he's higher than any other. He's mighty to save. He's our cornerstone. The weak are made strong and the Savior as well. That's what we're doing, right? We're reminding each other and encouraging each other who God is. And our perspective also begins to change. So moving on to verse 15, this is when the Spirit of God comes upon a prophet. Uh, he said, listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, This is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing up the pass of Ziz. Sounds like a nice place. And you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jerusalem. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your position. Stand firm and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. So Jehoshaphat bowed down his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down and worshiped before the Lord. Imagine that. Then some Levites from the Kohites, Kohathites, let's go with that, and the Korites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. So one of the amazing encouragement, right? This prophet speaks to the Lord, and he says, the battle is not yours, but the battle is, is God's. But we notice that God doesn't say, because it's his battle, go back to your tents or go back to your house and, you know, pull the sheets up over your face and, and God's got this, right? What does he say? Even though it's his battle, he says, take up your positions, stand firm, and just see what I'm going to do. God wanted him to witness his power and his deliverance. And when we worship, again, that's what we're doing. We're taking up our positions. We're standing firm and we're saying, God, I trust you. Rather than striving and stressing and trying to conquer something in my own strength, power and might are in your hand. Picking up the uh, story in verse 20, this is where it gets exciting here. It says, early in the morning, they left for the desert of Tekoa. And as they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, listen to me, Judah, and the people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God, and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets, and you will be successful. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the army. They sang, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. And as they began to sing, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. The Ammonites and the Moabites rose up against the men from Mount Seir to destroy and annihilate them. And after they finished slaughtering those men from Seir, they helped to destroy one another. It's a little violent. Um, when the men of Judah came to the place, finally the overlooks this desert and looked towards this vast army, they saw only dead bodies lying on the ground. No one had escaped. So Jehoshaphat and his men went to carry off their plunder and they found among them a great amount of equipment and clothing and also articles of value, more than they could take away. There was so much plunder that it took three days to collect it. 
And um, so if we look at this, the people of Judah stand up. They see these armies approaching. What do they do? They send their singers and their musicians out first, right? And if you think about that, that's, that's crazy. If I were King Jehoshaphat, I would not send a bunch of musicians out on the front lines, right? A bunch of artsy, overly emotional, sensitive, <laughs> picky, skinny jean-wearing musicians. I don't know. I'm making fun of myself, but not all musicians are that way. But if I were, if I were him, I would want the scariest, biggest, um, meanest-looking guys to go ahead of the army um, to at least give these other guys that were slightly intimidating, right? Um, it's like if we think about it at church here, if we were to put ourselves in this position here, if that were happening to, to us, I'd probably want someone like a Gene Corn maybe going out first there. You don't mess with Gene Corn. Um, John Rudder maybe. You don't mess with John and some of our security team. That's, that's what I want. But musicians, I don't know. If I were up there, we'd be in big trouble. So... Um, but no, God had spoken, and he, uh, they sent their musicians and their singers out first. And I can just imagine those guys, the musicians, standing there in a line. I mean, who knows what they were thinking? This is just what I imagine. And they're standing. Maybe they have a little trumpet, maybe a, a crash cymbal, maybe a little triangle. And they're standing there. All right, guys. <laughs> we are going to die today. <laughs> Let's enjoy this last little song together. Here we go. And maybe quietly and tentatively they start to sing, Give thanks to the Lord. His love endures forever. And imagine their bodies tense up. Maybe they're waiting for the arrows to come flying in. But that doesn't happen. So maybe they gain more confidence in this thing. Give thanks to the Lord. His love endures forever. And nothing happens. They continue to sing this. Eventually they look out over the silence among them. And all they see is dead bodies. Their enemies have been defeated. So God had given the people the most amazing victory. And they had done nothing except worship God. So worship is not many things that Frank's been sharing with us already, right? It's about adoration, confession, and celebrating. But worship is also a powerful weapon against God's enemies. In Psalm 149.6, it says, Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. We also see in Acts 16, the story of Paul and Silas. If you guys remember that, they're in prison. They begin to sing hymns to their God. God sent this earthquake and their chains fell off. And a prison guard came to salvation that day. So I know many of us in this room are going through some really, really hard times right now. And um, even though my heart is broken, I can't imagine to begin to know what it feels like to go through what you're going through. Um, this is not a warm and fluffy, you sing a song and everything just goes away, right? All your problems disappear. Um, but if we look at God's word and we trust in his promises, he says that he is near to us, he's with us, and that he inhabits the praises of his people Right? He inhabits the praises of his people. And in God's presence, there is life. There is hope. We find that we're restored and we're replenished. There's hope. We find that peace can begin to fill our hearts when we're worshiping God. And in his presence, during those difficult times, during our battles, he wants to remind us that he is our good father, that he's our comforter, that he's rescued us, that he's given us a hope, that we'll be with him in paradise where there, there is no more crying, and sorrow, and he's going to make everything new. And I don't know about you, but in very difficult time, that's where I'd want to be in God's presence. So I'm just going to show you all one last illustration here. Um, this guy up here on the screen is Veteran Smelovic. I think I said that right. Um, he's a celloist from, from Bosnia. And in 1992, some of you might remember this story. This small, beautiful European city called Sarajevo was torn apart by war. 
Bombs destroyed some of the city's beautiful historic buildings and many lives were lost. This man was a professional cellist in this local orchestra. Near his apartment, this bomb came and blew up this building and killed 22 men, women, and children that were in line to buy bread. After this happened, this man would dress up in his suit and for months every day, take his cello and play this adagio in G minor. Let's just listen to it for a second. So he would sit among these rooms and just to offer some kind of beauty and some kind of comfort to his community in the middle of this chaos. He became famous for this and he was quoted saying to a reporter that my cello is my weapon. So I, I love this picture. I love what happens. I think this is kind of a picture of what happens when God's church comes to worship him. That in the middle of sorrow and pain and despair, there's something of beauty and comfort and hope that is ushered in. And the cool thing is we have a much more powerful weapon than a cello, right? God's given us the, the power of the resurrected Jesus that's inside of us. So, would you guys stand and pray with me? God, we are so thankful for, for the gift of music that you've given us to us, Lord, that how it connects to your heart, Lord. God, it's amazing that you would care deeply about us, this creator of the universe, all-powerful, awesome king of kings, that you would pursue us when we wander away from you, that you desire for us to be in your presence, that you invite us in. What an amazing gift of grace, Lord. God, I pray you would comfort those hurting today and remind them that you are good, that you would give us courage to enter into your presence and to surrender these things to you, to lift our eyes up as we remember who you are, Lord. God, we're so thankful for you. We're thankful for the cross. With our entire being, we worship with sobriety and with respect and with great celebration. We worship as a way to fight the enemy. And why do we do that? Because it's an overflow of our hearts. We worship so that we proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of the darkness into his marvelous light. So let's be a people that are aware of the depth and the height and the width and the breadth of the love of Christ that is so deep, so high, so wide, and so broad that we can never find its edges. May, may, may we, the voice of this church be a voice that's heard loud and far, echoing the name of the great I am, echoing the name of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. May we be a church who constantly echoes the name of Jesus. And let's worship that we make much of him.